Thanks for pressing play. On our last episode, we popped the hood on these new digital products and specifically things called NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And um, as you may know, recently a 10 second, 10 second, yeah, some people got sickened, a 10 second video clip sold for $6.6 million. Uh, and that was an NFT. Jack Dorsey, founder of Twitter, is now auctioning off the first tweet ever sent for right now, as of this taping, two and a half million dollars. And uh, rock band Kings of Leon appear to be the first band releasing a record as an NFT. And so these cyber collectibles are uh, taking off and having a uh, profound impact. But our producer, Jason DeFilippo, has some questions. <laughs> and so you see, Jason is uh, the greatest of all time in uh, podcast producers. And he's worked with Tim Ferriss, Jordan Harbinger, and many others. And he also has a lot of experience in the art world. That's where his dad worked. And he worked with his dad for a long time. And he also is the host of one of the greatest podcasts ever, Grumpy Old Geeks. Um, Grumpy Old Geeks might have the best tagline of any uh, podcast. I believe it's uh, what went wrong on the internet and who's to blame. Anyway, so Jason has an opinion about NFTs, and we talk about that, Clubhouse, and a bunch of other fun things. And so as marketers, it's always fun to check in with the geeks, and that's what we're going to do on this episode. And I think you're going to have a really good time hanging out with Jason. Our friends at NetSuite by Oracle are the number one platform for businesses who want to be legendary. Check out NetSuite.com slash different and get your free product tour of NetSuite and learn how to build a foundation for flexibility that allows you to manage with precision at netsuite.com slash different. And data is an asset that goes up in value every day. And our friends at Splunk are the category queens and kings of data to everything. Visit splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E. That's splunk.com slash D to E. And go to lockhead.com today. And there you can uh, subscribe to the hot newsletter. Yeah, what the hell? It is hot. Category pirates. Now, hey ho. Let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. So, Jace, digital products. Why would somebody pay $6.6 million for a GIF? Too much money and not enough sense is where I'm going to start the conversation <laughs> with that. Yeah, I, your, your episode about NFTs, non-fungible tokens, or what I like to call not fucking tangibles, are all over the news now. You know, you you brought it out that this was a category redefining moment. And I'm like, Chris never played Warcraft. We had this kind of shit back in the day, 10 years ago, and we would buy digital items. We would buy digital clothes. We would mine gold. It was, it was Bitcoin before there was Bitcoin. And it was just a bunch of nerds sitting around killing orcs. And there was a purpose to the NFTs back then because it was all in-game and we were making thing, making digital items, buying digital items, selling digital items uh, for a purpose. 
you know, it was to bet our betterment of the game. And now we have all of the crap that, you know, was the, the digital stuff, but no game to play. The game is supposed to be reality. It's like, okay, now I can buy, you know, my level 12 orc helmet for $6.6 million that, by the way, anybody can get for free. And it, it has no actual use in the real world. And it's NFT is one of those things that to somebody like myself with a highly tuned bullshit detector made my head explode. <laughs> well, and I saw um, your buddy, Seth Godin, put that but you sent me his blog he shit all over them too right he says this is ridiculous right the one time in history seth godin and i have agreed on something i believe (laughs) there are parts in his blog post that are not correct but we'll we can talk about that in a second but yes seth and i actually do agree that nft is is not a thing in any way shape or form well, and to your point, since we put out that episode of Lockhead on Marketing, where I said the world had changed, uh, some follow-on shit has gone down, right? So mm-hmm. Kings of Leon, you sent me that note, right? They're the first band to sell a record as an NFT. Is that, am I remembering this right? Am That's I getting correct. this right? Yes. I was actually going to go buy it to see what the process was like. I was going to shell out my my 50-some-odd dollars to you know, buy it, but first I had to go through the the uh, the arduous task of figuring out how to set up an Ethereum wallet, go buy Ethereum or Ether to put in my Ethereum wallet. So then I can go sign up and pay for the Kings of Leon album with my Ether that I just went through this arduous process of figuring out. I could not just go to OpenSea and give them $57. I had to go buy a cryptocurrency to do it. Now, the exchange rate at the time with fees when I was going to go do it for $100 in Ether would cost me $109.50. So it was a 9.5%, you know, idiot tax is what I'll call it to get my my Ether in. And so I'm like, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to play the game. I'm not going to play the game. So I just thought, I thought that would, I'm like, Ticketmaster would be proud. If this is going to go on in the music industry, Ticketmaster has to be just slathering right now going, we are going, every ticket to every show is now an NFT. That's what it's going to be. Well, and of course, uh, Jack Dorsey is auctioning off the first ever tweet. And last time I looked, it was looked like it might sell for two and a half million dollars for somebody to own an NFT'd his first ever tweet is that am I understanding this right? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. And if you if you doubt in any way, shape, or form that this is not a rich man's game, Jack is selling his tweets. Elon Musk is selling his tweets as well, and a bunch of other you know people who don't need your money. They don't need your ether, and they're cashing in on this, which makes me go, yeah, this it. it this is not something that civilians should have any part of. And what what pisses me off about the news media, like, you know, glorifying the NFTs and saying that they are the next big thing is gullible people who think that, you know, they're missed out on the Bitcoin rush are going to see NFTs as a way to jump in and say, hey, OK, I missed that last one. I, I feel so stupid that I missed Bitcoin. Let me go buy some NFTs because they're just going to run up in value. I can sell them. I can turn and burn and get out and I can make some profit. And it's not what's going to happen. People are going to, it's it's just going to be sadness, tears, and ones and zeros. <laughs> now, now here's, so I don't know whether it's going to be NFTs or DOGs or the technical whatevers, but 
There, <laughs> but there is an interesting insight here, and this is one I want to kind of push on with you. Please. Which is what I talked about on that last episode is if you're a native digital person, so plus or minus somebody under 30. Yes. The aha that I've had is that your digital life is at least as important and frankly, for most, more important than your physical life, your analog life. And if that's true, then you're going to buy products and services in your digital life to add value to your digital life. Yes. And so the scenario that I could see is, for example, younger people saying, look, I'm not going to drive a car. I'm going to lift an Uber around, but maybe I'll buy a snazzy car for some video game that I play so that I can win more races because I have a cooler car. Or there's mm -hmm. people now building, uh, buying land in various digital environments and shit uh, who might now buy physical land. And so I guess my question to you is, are you calling bullshit on NFTs as a specific sort of technology or are you calling bullshit on the idea that people are going to start spending an increasing amount of money buying digital things of one sort or another? NFTs. Absolutely NFTs. People are always going to buy digital things. People buy Snapchat filters or anything else. There's a purpose behind buying those digital assets, and that is to augment the activity that they are doing in their online life. NFTs they're nothing. It is a, a proof of authenticity of something that can be copied and handed out ad nauseum. Okay, I can copy Jack's tweet. What does owning Jack's tweet actually mean in any reality that you can come up with? I mean, you, you explain to me why that enhances my digital life in any way, shape, or form. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't. But buying digital items, what you did nail on, you know, you, you totally got it. I think you're a little bit late to the party as far as kids, the digital life and spending money on digital items. That's been going on, like I've said, forever. As a World of Warcraft player, I spent hundreds of dollars. Any other game that I've, I've played tons of games where I've spent, you know, I, I bought skateboards and video games to be able to do better tricks and things like that. And I put money into those digital things. And when the game goes away, the assets go away. It was for a moment in time for an activity that I was doing. And it's, it, it, it's completely ephemeral and it all goes away. And when I look at NFT, I see that as something that is a fad. It is kind of like the pet rock. But at the end of the day, with a pet rock, you at least had a fucking rock you could hold. You know, with NFT, you've got basically an entry on a blockchain which I think in the future is going to say, they should call it the moron chain, because then you can go back through the blockchain and say, look at that idiot who just paid $2 million for Jack's tweet. You know, it's, it's stupid money with stupid people doing stupid things. And I come from the art world. My dad has sold fine art for over 35 years. Fine art is an illusion. Everything about fine art is an illusion. It's about story. Because you can spend you know, $10,000 on a signed gicle from your favorite artist, or you can go around the corner to the poster shop and get one for 10 bucks, which is printed on the same exact paper, the same exact process, but they call it something different and it doesn't have a scribble on it, you know? And it's that story that people tell with the, you know, the rarity of the items that really make it a thing. And when it comes to the NFT, that's really, it's kind of the same bullshit. And, you know, everybody in the fine art world knows it's all bullshit.
but it's a bullshit that they all play because they like to, because they can play it. They want to be the new guy on the block. Even I, I showed this to my dad and, and sent him all the articles on NFT. And he's like, I, I'm not surprised by it. I think a lot of artists are going to make out gangbusters with it. And I think a lot of people are probably going to lose a lot of money on it. So the thing that's interesting to me about this is the reason a Picasso is worth so much is because there's only one. Mm -hmm. But to your point, you can buy a print of it that to the untrained eye, we wouldn't be able to know the difference, right? Right. So why wouldn't you just buy a high quality print for, I don't know, what what is a high quality print of a, a, a you know, a, a limited run prints? What do they run for? Not not original paintings, but... It, depend, it depends on the run, the, the edition number, signed by the artist. Obviously, Picasso ain't signing shit nowadays. So it, it depends on several factors, but... One artist that I know, you know, you can buy an original original for five hundred thousand dollars, the original oil painting. Yeah. Then for you know, you you have different editions that go down in price. So you can get some that cost five thousand dollars each. You know, it'd be like a run of fifty signed, those cost five thousand dollars each. Then you get, you know, um the middle edition, which is a five hundred, and then you get the poster. So it's it's all across the spectrum because they want to sell art. It's a sliding scale. Yes. Absolutely. The thing that's interesting to me, though, the the original is one of one. Yes. Right. So if you want the original, you've got to get the one of one. And then there are all these offshoots of the original. The thing I find confusing here with these uh, NFTs is, to your point, when I saw the gift that sold for six and a half million bucks, I was like, well, this is I'm watching this on Yahoo. Like anybody can watch this anytime they want. Yeah. So if I can watch this for free on my browser, why would I pay $6.5 million to have the original GIF? Like uh, that part sounds like a real head scratcher. That's the problem with it. It doesn't make any sense. I think it's a fad. And as fads go, it this has all of the the hallmarks of we've been stuck inside for far too long. We need something to excite us. <laughs> it's got it's on the blockchain. You know, if they could just sprinkle in some AI, we would have like a BS trifecta here. It's just one of those things where somebody came up with an idea that probably has a good use at some point, but selling art is not one of them. And I was looking at Bruce Sterling. He's a sci-fi author and futurist who I adore. He's got a private Twitter feed. You can't you can't just go retweet him or I would have sent you a bunch of tweets. But he's been collecting digital art from artists that he likes for years now. They're not on the blockchain. They're on different sites where you can go buy the, you know, the original files and you get a certificate of authenticity. And there is a reseller market on on that platform. But they're only, you know, they're they're selling that art and it's a way to support the artist. It it is just a, you know, just a flat out way to support artists you like so they can make more art. You know, it's like a patron model. And you don't need the blockchain for it. You don't need one of one because it's a digital item. You know, once it becomes digital, it's everywhere, no matter what. Well, that was going to be my next point, which is the, this one of one business is artificially created yes. in the digital world. In the physical world, when Picasso finishes, that's it. But in the digital world, with this with this thing that just sold for six and a half million bucks, there's no reason you couldn't create twenty billion more of them. You're just you're just not you're choosing not to do it. Correct. Which is it's just I don't know. 
it does feel strange. I guess the question, here's the meta question for you, forgetting NFTs as a specific, but this notion of digital products. If I'm a native digital person, does it make sense for me to buy a digital piece of art in a way that it wouldn't make sense to me if I'm a native, again, I'm a native digital person, to buy a physical piece of art? Are we at a tipping point where for some subset of humanity, digital products are going to be more valuable than physical products? It depends on if you're living in a digital world, like, say, uh, Second Life or, you know, the the much-touted metaverse, which doesn't exist. You know, Neil Stevenson talked about it in Snow Crash way back in the day. Everybody's trying to get to the metaverse, but, you know, digital art that you can buy that you're the only one that works, that it works in that system. Say, hey, I bought this Picasso in the metaverse. You can't copy it. You can't put it up here. And, you know, okay, you know, it's DRM'd. You can't do it. That makes more sense if you're buying something like that. Or like I said, in a video game where the creators of the game have created one of these tokens, I can buy this sword that, you know, only I can have and I'll pay $10,000 for it and it will be mine for the life of the game and it will be the best sword that they make until next year when they need some more money and then they make the second, you know, the second greatest sword in the world. And then (laughs) exactly you have to have a context. I think when you're dealing with these digital items, you have to have a context on what they're going to be used for. There is no context right now for NFTs, period. The only context you have to buy an NFT is if you're going to speculate to sell it again to somebody who is dumber than you so you can get more money off the NFT. The the one cool thing about basing it on Ethereum, which if there is a way to tie this into the physical art world with licenses and things like that is when you resell that art a chunk of that money goes back to the original artist because in the real art world, you know, the secondary market, the artists are screwed. I create a painting cost. I'm going to sell it to you for $5,000 in 10 years. That is going to be worth $5 million. You're going to sell it for $10 million. I get none of that upside period. So I have to make another piece that I can sell for 10 million and, and, you know, keeps going. So if you buy into an artist when they're, you know, just getting started and you support them, then, you know, you reap all the upside. They get none of the upside down the line, except for the fact that they've, you know, they have this body of work, but they're not capitalizing on that anymore. In the way that the NFTs can be structured is, say, I sell you that painting for $5,000, you sell it for $5 million or $10 million down the line, I get a cut of that. Because the value has gone up, you've profited off of it, so I should profit as well. Which is a very cool thing. That, I think, is one of the the cool things about the NFT space and the smart contract space with Ethereum. And if you could figure out a way to do that in the real world, it'd be great. But I don't know how that would be enforceable in any way, shape, or form. Well, and if the digital world becomes the real world and the real world becomes the adjunct world to the digital world, that might be that might be the future of how artists get paid. Well, I'm going to tell you about the the one piece of uh, the one piece of art that saddens me greatly. Uh, so one of the links I sent you was uh, this guy took an authentic Banksy. It was called, you know, appropriately enough, called Morons, which was the depiction of a, an art auction. And this guy took a scan of it turned it into an NFT and then burned the original took it like literally destroyed the original physical piece of art and then sold it as an NFT. And he got $379,000 for it. 
which I'm guessing is a hell of a lot more than the original Banksy because that was like one of 350 that uh, that he's it was an edition of 350 that he burned one of. Um, I think that was the number. It's something like that. It was a limited edition under a thousand and he burned one of them, destroyed it, took it from the original world, which, which funnily enough makes all the other ones more valuable because now there's one left in that edition or one less from that edition. So he got everybody else's art, you know, valued higher because we now physically know that he burnt it because he made a fucking YouTube video of him burning it and then sold it. And it's just like, it's just, it, you know, I don't want people burning original art so they can make bucks on the digital world for short-term gain with, you know, just no view of the future. The thing I find fascinating in all of this, Jace, is how quickly the definition of what's valuable can change. You know, so I look at it from a category point of view, right? And it's like, well, we used to, in the art world, we used to have a definition of what was valuable, and that definition evolved slowly over time. But now there's a whole shift in thinking around what's valuable and what's not. I mean, if, if, if Jack Dorsey can sell a tweet for two and a half million bucks, I'll, I got some tweets for you. I'll sell you for half a million bucks. Of, I'll give you a deal on them if you want. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so this is the thing that I find most fascinating, which is how rapidly right now, the perception of what is valuable and what is not valuable. And, you know, there's some research out there that suggests that people value their phones more than they value their cars. Most people don't sleep with their car next to them, but they do sleep with their phone next to them. And so in this digital world, and particularly for native digital people, they're viewing things that heretofore seem ridiculous to value as very valuable. You can view it as valuable, but it, 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 you know, value is in the eye of who's going to pay for it next. You know, I can value this microphone that I'm talking to you at for $25,000 because I have used it for 2000 shows. Who's going to pay $25,000 for this microphone? Maybe a giant super fan, but as I know, those don't exist. This microphone is worth probably $250 on the open market. It's, it's I think all about mostly female fans. Your female fans, I think, would want that more than your male fans. I don't think I have any of those, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, you and I have been bantering back and forth about Clubhouse. And, um, you know, what's your take on Clubhouse? Clubhouse is over. And this was this was the last thing I wanted to put a button on. You were talking about how everybody is, you know, going to be getting into the NFT thing. And are you familiar with the idea of the shark fin when it comes to product adoption and especially in like in the app world? Educate me. Shark fin is if you look at an adoption graph, it goes up and then it's going up, it's up, it's up, it hits a precipice and then drops. So on a graph, it looks like a shark fin. There have been apps that uh, Flappy Birds was like an app like that. So the adoption went up. Everybody's like, oh, let's check out Flappy Birds, Flappy Birds, Flappy Birds, which was a joke app. And a lot of people bought it. And then everybody got the joke and then nobody bought it again. I think NFTs are going to be like that because if you look at how many people are creating NFT tokens right now for just about everything you possibly can, if you look at, uh, there was a tweet that I think OpenSea put out. OpenSea is one of the big marketplaces where a lot of this stuff is going down. They've gone like straight up. Like in the past month, we've had over 120,000 new pieces of digital art added to our platform. And it's going to keep going up now. Now that people there's there's blood in the water, so you know, the shark fin is definitely going. To, I think is going to be one of the steepest shark fins and straightest drops that we've ever seen. Could we be the first podcasters to put 
to sell episodes as NFTs. Tech Meme Ride Home already beat you to it. <laughs> Excellent. Yep. Maybe we'll be the first marketing podcast. If, could, we, could we sell the first episode of Lockhead on marketing as an NFT? Well, you can put it up for auction if anybody will buy it. I don't know. We can. Okay, I think we're announcing the auction right now. Um, email your best offer to blackhole at lockhead.com <laughs> and we'll sell you the NFT of the first, fuck it, we'll give you the first five episodes of Lockhead on marketing as NFTs and you can own them forever. <laughs> blackhole at lockhead.com. <laughs> And one one last thing I wanted to get to before we jump into Clubhouse, which I have a few things to say about, is that since a lot of these auctions are on the Ethereum chain, you can do them anonymously. You, there is no trail on who's doing what buying. So let's say I have a whole bunch of Ether. I'm an artist. I go ahead. I put my put my first art piece up. I buy it myself. Then I you know transfer some Ether around. I buy it again. Buy it again. I basically keep putting money back to myself. All I'm paying is the transaction fees to artificially inflate the price of that piece of art until I get a fish. That fish bites the hook and says, well, I want to be the next person since this is obviously going up in value. And then that person buys it and then nobody ever cares again. You don't think anybody would manipulate the market like that though, do you, Jace? Oh, I never, never. <laughs> I'm saying I'm saying in an alternate Star Trek world where we all have goatees and some people are evil, things like that might happen. Just saying. So really your message is digital products, yes. NFTs proceed with extreme caution yes extreme caution extreme caution do not spend money that you cannot afford to lose if you cannot take that big wad of cash that you're about to spend on an nft take it out in your backyard set it on fire and cook a hot dog over it then you should not be spending it on an nft because you at least get a cooked hot dog at the end if you just burn the money i think in the other way you just might have a gift that everybody else has too so if I had told you that I had purchased um, Jack Dorsey's tweet for two and a half million bucks, you wouldn't you wouldn't have thought I wisely used my money? <laughs> no, no. I would have said, why didn't I get a fucking raise before you did that? <laughs> well, I didn't. So <laughs> there we go. So Clubhouse. All right. Clubhouse. Tell me about your point of view on Clubhouse. Clubhouse is about to uh, have an untimely demise, I fear. Twitter has already launched Spaces which is basically the same thing. I, I don't know if you have it yet, but it showed up on my app. I can start a Twitter space right away now. Everybody else is getting into it. Mark Cuban is getting into it with Fireside. Uh, there's a bunch of other people. It's not hard tech to do. Fireside sounds a lot more interesting to me than Clubhouse. Just from the name naming perspective? No, no, just uh, some of the functionality I've heard of. Uh, the thing about Clubhouse I find fascinating is is it's a webinar hosting platform. With no video. With no video. And the internet, thanks to primarily Netflix, but now podcasts and YouTubes and all of us, decoupled this idea of appointment viewing, right? Mm -hmm. In the old days, if you wanted to watch it, you had to wait till 8 o'clock on Thursday night or whatever the fuck it was. And now because of Netflix, because of the internet, because of podcasting, we can binge watch, we can consume what we want when we want. And that's the paradigm that we all love. I find it incredible that they've been able to position themselves as the future of audio social networks, and they've brought back appointment viewing. Yep, they sure have. In addition, my buddy John Wall of Marketing Over Coffee was quick to point out that as a creator, there's no value here. First of all, I got to be live, so it's just like radio. So instead of podcasting, where we do it now and release it later, you got to be live. So as a creator, you're fucked on that. 
And John also pointed out there's no SEO value. So you don't get any goodness on the social web. So you have to be there. You have to do a radio show. As a user, you have to be there for that specific time. And so I just, I've done only one of these things. Uh, and I've, I've listened to five seconds of a bunch of others. It were just a bunch. It just seemed like a bunch of stupidity to me. So I don't know. Am, am I, have I turned into a grumpy old geek? I, 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 I'm, I'm <laughs> getting this one. No, you, you, you nailed it on the head on all, all accounts there. Uh, I bounced around for a while. I'd go into a bunch of different rooms. And what it is, is it's, it's a bunch of scam artists mo- for the most part in there trying to sell you on their hustle porn dream. Because most of the people that can bounce in and out of these rooms all the time don't have a job. They're just hanging around, bouncing from room to room. It's not like, you know, I, I, I've been invited to like two dozen clubhouse chats. I'm like, uh, that's at 3.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday. I have a job. What? what? Or they want to do it at like 10.30 at night. I'm like, I got to sleep. Like, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't like scheduled things anywhere. The only time we schedule anything is if we have to record a show for us, you know, I'm not going to bounce around for anybody else's show. And then, you know, once we record it, like you said, we release it and then anybody can get it whenever they want. Yeah. On a zillion platforms, you know, and last time I actually checked, somebody asked me this recently. So I checked, uh, we're downloaded in 189 countries. Mm -hmm. And as a podcaster, we don't even know how many different podcast listening apps there are out there. I mean, I don't know what the people who, you know, in Kuala Lala Ding Dong, who listen to this podcast, listen to us on, maybe they listen on Apple or Google or Spotify, but there's a whole bunch. Anyway, the point being, you can get it anywhere. And so I yep. just, I have scratched my head about Clubhouse from the beginning and everybody in Silicon Valley got all excited about it. But uh, do you think it's going to, um, you know, am I stupid? Uh, should all marketers be Clubhousing or is this, is Clubhouse going to just go to your point on the, on the shark graph? Is it going to go away? It's going to shark fin because there are other people coming in and, you know, there are a lot of problems with Clubhouse as far as privacy. You know, your your entire contact list is owned by them now. As soon as you sign up and send anybody an invite, they have the, your contact list. They can extrapolate your connections and everybody else's connections. It's, it's, it's a mess with that. The back end is hosted in China. So everything is being recorded in China. So that's always a downside. So just from those those couple little things alone that's bad news. But the other side is, yeah, no discoverability. Finding a room is terribly hard. Audio quality sucks. They say you're not allowed to record it, but everybody records it. And, you know, there's just, there's so many things wrong with it. It's just, I can't even, it's hard to begin to figure out where the most wrongity wrong McSteen thing is wrong with it because there are so many. (laughs) And, you know, like I said, Twitter, it's going to be built into their app. I don't need to have a separate app. Uh, I haven't tried it yet, but I'm sure I will at some point. But it's just like, instead of making a tweet, you just make a space. People can pop right in and chat. Well, and I thought Zoom could destroy these people in five seconds if they wanted to. Uh, I think every, I think Zoom probably has just the, unfortunately, the branding of Zoom and everybody's tired of being on Zoom. You know, that's one of the downsides of Zoom coming in to do it. But I mean, they already do it. That's all you have to do. You set up a webinar on Zoom and you're done. Send out a link. Everybody joins. Boom. Bob's your uncle. And, and my buddy, marketing genius, uh, uh, Sangram Vajri, was telling me about how he does uh, clubhouses on on LinkedIn. LinkedIn has a capability to invite people to an event. He just does a webinar. It's called a webinar. He does it with a LinkedIn event. And he gets, yeah. you know, thousands of people to come to his things. LinkedIn Live, Facebook Live, YouTube Live. It already exists. 
It all it already right. exists everywhere, and everybody's already got the app. Right. So there's no point to this app, as far as I can tell, except for people to try and sell you their their marketing, you know, course or things like that. That's mostly what it is. How to take a better Instagram photo. So is it already over? Are there are there as a marketer, as a geek talking to a marketer, should I be doing things on there to try to capture any of the enthusiasm or the excitement? Or do you think it's already over? I think it's already over. I would I would take the time that you would spend on Clubhouse and go spend with your wife and your cat. That's what I have been doing. So Perfect. Keep doing that. You're ahead of the curve. <laughs> You're ahead of the curve. All right, Jace, anything else going on in the tech world that you uh, think marketers need to know about right now that's uh, on your mind? I would just keep an eye out for this... Um, I don't know what to call it. It's kind of manufactured nostalgia. Like there's this new app called Dispo out there where it's been valued at $200 million. A guy brought in a bunch of money for it already. And what it is is just a phone app with no filters that you can't check your photos until the next day. Trying to come, you know, relive the nostalgia of the disposable 35 millimeter camera. And it's worth $200 million. And why? I don't, I mean, and oh, here's the other thing. It's invite only. You have to have an invite. They're doing the, you know, the invite route again, creating false scarcity to try and get the buzz up. I will never review another app if everybody can't join, period. That's the way I'm, I'm just from a technology perspective, I'm not going to feed into their hype machine and give them any press if everybody can't join. I don't, if you're in closed beta, you're in closed beta. I'm not going to sit there and have people like, you know, fake give out like, okay, if you tweet about this and have five of your friends join up, you can jump the queue and get in. That's just, it's, you know, it's using your users against you to market your own app. And I don't believe in that. And that's, you know, that's another one of the things that Clubhouse did. And I think they ruined it for everybody because if they'd have done it smart, they probably could have figured out a way to do it to make them not figure out that they're so douchey. But now Dispo's doing it. And it's just, it's an old technique, you know, false scarcity is a very old technique, but it's being it's being we used weaponized. to call it studio 54 marketing yeah you know you put a velvet rope in front of the bar and you don't let anybody in and you just let the weird looking hot sexy looking people in and and all of a sudden all the people that didn't get picked make your bar that's it <laughs> which is that which is fomo marketing and you're right i mean i it's like what do you mean i have five invitations go fuck yourself that was exactly my attitude as well <laughs> Oh, yeah. Just, <laughs> You're only going to let me grow your platform by five people, you pieces of shit. <laughs> yeah. But it worked. But you think people are hip to the uh, hip to the scam, so to speak? No, I don't. That's why we're talking about it. I, I want people to know to get hip to the scam. I definitely. So you think people. this will stop the 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 false uh, the false invite false thing? FOMO? Yeah, yeah, I don't the, think it's going to. I don't think it's going to stop until people stop using it and stop buying into it. You know. As a marketer, I understand and appreciate the value of the technique. However, mm-hmm. you know, for example, we just launched Category Pirates. I would never do something like that. It just, it's ridiculous. It's silliness, mm-hmm. right? And so I can't, I, I as a marketer or a creator for that matter, I can't do something that I think is fucking stupid and ridiculous. I can't treat people that way right yeah of course we're not restricting access to the goddamn newsletter we want everybody to buy it for fuck's sakes like of course and pretending that we don't is ridiculous (laughs) yeah 
And I, I don't know if you see this. I don't know if you do a lot of online courses or check out online course marketing. Uh, that's a an entirely slimy group of people who do a lot of online course marketing. Uh, there are some really good people. I'm launching a course. I hope to be one of the good ones. So take note. But what you'll see a lot is that same type of thing. It's like, hey, we're going to close uh, registration uh, by midnight on Tuesday. So if you don't sign up by midnight on Tuesday, we're not going to open up, open up uh, enrollment again until, you know, September. So make sure you get in now because, you know, seats are limited. I'm like, you're selling a digital course that's pre-recorded that anybody can go click and just watch the videos and read the text. And you're saying that you're going to close enrollment. Uh, say what? And people, people buy into it. People actually it's, fall for it's that. It's made up scarcity. Yeah, it is. It is false scarcity. So uh, I want people to just see those things for what they are and just be, be cognizant of them. Be careful because if somebody is telling you that they're going to sell a digital course to you and they're going to market it that way and saying that, look, we're only going to allow 500 people into this course, A, I guarantee you they're going to let more than 500 people in because they're the only people that know how many people sign up. And also it's a scam. It's just trying to, you see it all the time too on Instagram. If you click on an Instagram ad, they're like, oh, 27 left, better buy now. And if you refresh the page, oh, 97 left, better buy now. Oh, wait, seven left, better buy now. Oh, 104 left, better buy now. It's just a randomizer that makes people think that there's only a few left. And this is why some marketing people, some marketing people have a bad, uh, bad rep. <laughs> exactly. That's why you're one of the good ones, Chris. That's why you and I are friends. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. Which maybe leads to the point of today, which is only do marketing that you could be proud of, right? I mean, I wouldn't want to do something marketing that would piss me off. I want to do marketing that I think is great. And lying to people about fake scarcity is uh, is a bizarre way to get there. And, you know, it's funny in the marketing, digital marketing world, we hear all this stuff about funnels and all this, you know, and, 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 the, and, and the journey, the prospect journey and all this sort of stuff and creating all these things that drive people through the funnel. And my buddy, Tom Schwab, who runs Interview Valet, who, you know, mm -hmm. he says, um, he says, whales don't, don't swim through funnels. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good point. Very good point. I love Tom. So... Do marketing that is not insulting. I think that's the learning for me. All right. Well, thanks for having me on, Chris. This was fun. Thank you, brother. I, I love you. You're the goat. Thank you. Please never fire me. You're not going to be fired, Chris. I promise. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Well, there he is, the goat, Jason DeFilippo. And uh, <laughs> we have a lot of fun together. And if you love this episode as much as I did, why not share it with 300 of your closest friends right now? There's probably a share option on the podcast listening app that you're listening to us on right now. All right. We would like to thank the legendary people at Atranet, building B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net. If you're in Australia and you want to do legendary marketing, my friends at rapidmedia.com.au are ready and able to help. Uh, go to Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com, and get subscribed to Category Pirates, the newsletter for people who care about category creation and category design. Remember, this podcast goes way better with libations. Please don't forget to tip your weight staff. And if you like it enough to listen, 
Um, why not tell the whole world about it? Today's information is provided just solely for informational purposes. Please con- uh, consult your shaman, mystic, lawyer, doctor, bartender, and spouse before acting on any of today's information. Remember to listen to Katie Lang, read Reese and Trout. Thank you to all of our healthcare and frontline heroes. Man, oh man, where would we be without you? And as always, we are produced and edited by Jason DeFilippo. Grumpy old geeks, check it out. Sarah Knox and Jamie Jay do legendary technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. And Candy Dandy keeps all the trains running on time. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe. Stay legendary. Uh, And the thought I'll leave you with comes from Albert Einstein, who said, Two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the universe. 